Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Everyone survived the holidays and the first two weeks of this crazy ass here in one piece. A very low bar here in 2022. I, for one, spent my last few days of 2021 in Maryland in a farmhouse away from people and close to many bottles of wine. It was perfect. I also decided to not hit the ground running this year, but really take some time and reflect back on my journey with this podcast, go over some of my favorite moments of the past two years, and I put together a little reel highlighting some of my favorite memories. So check it out. It's on IG at Tucker.podcast and also on my LinkedIn, Ami Tucker Ravel. I decided to start this year talking to a comedian and a humor writer because Lord knows we need it. Megan Dorothy writes for The New Yorker and Reductress and is a headline contributor for The Onion. In 2019, she was featured in the NBC Breakout Comedy Festival and in 2020 at the San Francisco Sketchfest. She performs regularly at Laugh Factory, Zany's, Comedy Bar, and Comedians You Should Know. In 2019, she was a writer for a comedic short directed by Natasha Leon, featuring John Mulaney, Maya Rudolph, Melinda Gates, and many more. Talking to Meg was exactly what I needed, and I hope this interview helps to kick off your year with a smile. Please enjoy my interview with Meg Indurdi. So I found you obviously through your writing. Um, I believe more than one person, but someone posted your Thanksgiving article from the, on the New Yorker. And I was like, I love her. I've always pretended I'm a comedy writer, but like everyone thinks they can write, but writing is actually really hard. So anyway, so I read that. I was like, I would, I want to be her when I grow up, even though I'm like 10 years older than you. Loved it. <laughs> Looked you up. And I was like, I wanted to start off the year with someone like you. Cause it's just been such a shit show. And like, I had all, I have a lot of great guests. Some are more serious than others. And I just thought, you know, it'd be, you'd be a good way to start. And a little bit about the podcast. It's about the South Asian journey, how brownness has been part of your decision-making. What's your level of brown guilt on things? Just, you know, just being brown and being in America. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. So you're born and raised in Hyderabad. Mm-hmm. And then you are also raised all over the East Coast near D.C., I always have to ask the immigrant story. What brought your parents here? You know, yeah. What's was that whole story? Yeah, it's so funny because I feel like, uh, so my, you know, my parents had like the typical immigrant story of like, oh, we wanted to come here to give both me and my younger brother better life. Um, they wanted to, you know, give us more opportunities. And then it's so funny because like in the last few years, my mom has spilled more tea and been like, actually, it was because your grandma was fucking crazy and I needed to... <laughs> get out of there um and i saw no other option for us to move uh-huh. across the ocean so it was uh i think that was like a huge like um you know how there's always there needs to, like people want to do stuff but sometimes you need like a fire under your ass and i think that was my grandma um uh-huh. so that is what brought my dad came here 
in 2000. And, um, and then we came, my mom, brother and I came a year later and, you know, my dad really like, he struggled here for a little bit because I mean, he had like a master's degree in India. He was like killing it. And then he came here and was having trouble finding work. You know, there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, racism against his accent, you know, cultural barriers and all. And he really like struggled to get his uh, footing. Um, and I think his ego took a huge blow. He was able to find, he lo- finally in Massachusetts in Worcester, he got a job. So it was enough to bring us over here. You know, we weren't well off, you know, like uh, there are a lot of like rich conservative Indian people. We were not <laughs> them. Um, we like stayed in like a one bedroom, like all slept together. That was sort of in Worcester. And then because my mom, my mom was a teacher, um, and because of the nature of her visa, she couldn't be a teacher here. So it was just my dad supporting us for a long time, and we just moved wherever he could find work. Um, they tried to stick to the East Coast as much as possible, but um, yeah, from after Massachusetts, we moved to Maryland, and then D.C., and then to Richmond, Virginia, and then back to the Northern Virginia area. Okay. And that was around uh, like seventh grade when my mom was like, okay, we need to stop moving every year because this is going to fuck up our kids' life, which it already did. But <laughs> but I'm glad she decided that. She was like, they need some stability. So that around then we bought a house because we had some more money by then. And now that's where we've, we've stayed here. Uh, so this is where they live now in Northern Virginia. Okay. And um, that was around when my mom uh, was like, okay, well, I can't be a teacher. So I'm just going to uh, do be a computer science engineer person. So she like took a bunch of classes from scratch, learned how to do it. And now works in that field, the same field as my dad, um, because we're, it was genuinely like, a, okay, we can't support all of this with one person's income. So yeah, now, and then now we're doing a lot better, but that is, they really are like the rags to riches story. Like really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like what, like, like what Drake brags about or like a lot of billionaires brag about, but they actually start off with a million dollars. (laughs) They really are. They really are that. Um, Yeah. So that's our, that's my immigrant story. story. Okay. Well, a few things. One, moving across the world to get away from your in-laws is legit. So yeah. tell your tell your mom I support her. <laughs> Two, it's interesting, you know, we're obviously a, I mean, I'm not that old, but we're a different generation and my and also our obviously our parents are my parents came in the late 60s mm-hmm. and a lot of my guests their parents have come around that same time. You're probably one of my first yeah. guests where your the parents have come during nine, almost like during the nine eleven time, correct? Ooh, yeah. I was. I we came July of two thousand one, so yeah. Uh, and I wow. started school August of two thousand one, and then nine eleven happened like a few weeks later, and that was the most traumatic experience of that. Like ruined my yeah. I, I can't even imagine because you were eight, right? Eight or nine when yeah. you moved. So I you probably eight. have memories of all this. I mean, it's not like you were oh, yeah. young and you also live in therapy. <laughs> Girl, we all need it. Yeah. But you also live in an area. I've been to Boston. I don't, I never lived there. My husband went to school there, but I've been to Boston many times. You also lived in a predominantly white area, I believe. Yeah. 
It was like the worst case scenario of we moved right before 9-11. I had like an accent. This was around the time when like people like this was before like social media and globalization. Like I'm sure you remember it like like nobody knew about other countries like like kids in my class would be like, do they have TVs in India? And I'm like, yeah, we have TVs in India. So like that was the level of knowledge they had about the world. Right. And they just there was a lot of anti-brown antagonism around that time, like huge spike in violence. Uh, my my parents were getting bullied at like grocery stores and they didn't even tell us the extent of it. I remember my mom sitting us down and being like, hey, if anyone asks, like you're not Muslim. I'm like, okay, but like we're not Muslim. And she's like, yeah, but just like tell them. That. Yeah, that's, like, that was like the way she felt like she could help you defend yourself, which is so sad, by the way. But like, I understand that. So like, I feel yeah. like a lot of our, our parents said that. The other thing I find kind of interesting it just, you would think on its face, my parents coming in the 60s would have a really hard time versus your parents coming later, you'd think it would be easier. You just think over time, right? Yeah. Like yeah. immigrants coming in, people understand, people are accepting, blah, blah, blah. But it feels like the reverse. My parents don't have any stories like that. Or maybe they <laughs> blacked out. I have no idea. Yeah, progress is not linear, I feel like, and yeah. uh, in, not even I feel like it is, like historically, um, there's just been up and down, especially with immigration. But I remember, I know like a lot of people came over in the 60s because of the Civil Rights Act that like allowed that to happen. Right. So I think there was a huge influx of people. But even then they were like selective about the people who came over. Like they were predominantly like, I don't know about your parents, but predominantly they were like professors and doctors and kind of like slightly more well-off people in in, uh, in other countries who could afford to come here versus like yeah. um, someone who is like more poor, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. No, totally. It, it's, and it makes sense. It's just, like you said, it's not linear. It would just seem like it because by the time your parents had come there, there was so, I mean, immigration, immigrants, there was an influx of Asians already, right. Mm-hmm. From, from all South Asia, Asia, and so you would just assume people will become more accepting. But of course, the 9-11 and blah, blah, blah. So then yeah. you must have hated it here. Like, did you want to go back? Yeah, I really, it's interesting. I really hated America for like the first year that I was here because everyone was so mean to me. And I felt really like alone because my parents were just like busy working all the time. So like I didn't have that support and then I didn't have any friends at school. I really hated America. Um, and I just like missed India. Like I had so many cousins and friends, like I, my life was just always like colorful and full. And so I felt like I was just like suddenly removed from all that. And I just felt right. really lonely. Um, and then it's interesting, like after like a year, I like kind of overcorrected to be like, you know what? I, I like I desperately wanted to be like white. I wanted to be like accepted by the white people. So then I started just like doing everything I could to like reject my Indian identity. Like I hated wearing gagras and churidars. I hated listening to like Indian music. I hated bringing Indian food to school because people would always like comment on it. Um, I like hated Indian mood. Like I just like completely rejected Shut down, my identity right? for like a couple of years for honestly till like college I would say it was just uh, I tried so hard to like assimilate to like whiteness just because it was all around me that I like hated myself essentially um it took a long time for me to like kind of figure out the balance of okay I'm American and Indian you know like the typical immigrant identity stuff 
Where you're like, crap. the whole bullshit ABCD comes in, but I'm like, we're not confused anymore. And by the way, Megna, <laughs> like your story of of wanting to reject the Indianness and all that, I feel like that's been all of us, no matter what generation. Yeah. So like between it's it happens like up until like college, like middle school, high school, you kind of want to push away from it blend in, reject all the Indianness. I was embarrassed of like my friends coming over to our house because mm-hmm. my mom was always cooking Indian food, like all that yep. stuff. And then I got to college and I went to UT Austin and just the Indianness came out. I was like, oh wait, this is kind of awesome. So I feel like it's a common yeah. story. I think we all kind of have to go through it, but we're not confused. I refuse the ABCD thing. No. And it's so interesting. <laughs> I feel like there's like steps to it too. And I feel like some people don't finish all the steps like I, I there's like definitely like Indian people that I know of who are still like even though they've accepted their Indianness who still like like mostly have white friends or like are kind of out of touch a little bit with their Indian identity who haven't figured out the right balance yet right. so I still feel like there's like people who like even like comedians who like cater to mostly white audiences um, so I feel like some people don't completely accept themselves or if they do, they only accept themselves enough to seem exotic and interesting to white people, but like right. not fully themselves. It's an interesting yeah. balance. Yeah. No right or wrong. It's just, I think everyone deals with it in, in various ways. So then I'm going to cy- psychoanalyze you a little bit because that's what I love doing. <laughs> okay. Even yes, though I have, please. I'm not expert with anything. I call myself an armchair expert. So comedy, was that a way for you to fit in? Because I know I read somewhere that... You were the weird kid, which was what I love because I was always weird. I was never like not – I was always like a random weird kid. (laughs) And then you also wrote somewhere that you were kind of the neighborhood gang leader. So (laughs) so That was in India though. Okay. I love that. I'm I'm just going to call you that. I'm going to call you NGL because that's the best. (laughs) So was comedy your way of kind of being like, all right, I'm going to make this shit happen here? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I feel like uh, my personality is actually like my comedic self on stage. Like that's who I really am. That's who I was in India. And that's who I am like around my friends. But I feel like um, when I came here, I couldn't fully be myself. So I like just really became like the loner, weird kid without any friends. But then once I started making friends, I was like, oh, okay, I remember my personality. This is who I am. I'm the gang leader, um, the natural center of attention. NGL. NGL. Um, Yeah. Comedy was, well, yeah, when I was like a loner, because we moved around a lot, I read a lot. Books were like my friends. I read constantly. That's also kind of how I like my English. That's how I got English, because I didn't really like know English that well when I moved here. Right. So that's how I learned English and became like interested in writing. That's from reading so much. And I feel like no one was hitting on me. No one was attracted to me. No one was like interested in me. So I just... I don't know how psychologically this happens because a lot of comedians have a similar story, but I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to be really smart and funny. Like I just was always funny. So it wasn't, I just wrote a lot of stories since like sixth grade onwards. I remember like all the kids I would babysit, like I was like their favorite babysitter because I would like tell them these stories and they'd be so interested and they would like laugh. And then even when I wasn't babysitting them, like their parents would call me and be like, hey, like they're not going to sleep. Like, can you just tell them a story on the phone? <laughs> I was like, yeah, OK. So and my brother was the same. Like I would just tell them these stories. And then like I remember like Tina Fey looking her up and being like, OK, I want to be what she does because I didn't know you could like get paid to write 
comedy and stories. Right, right. So I remember looking that up and being like, oh, I want the job that she has. I don't know how to get it, but that's what I want to do. I want to write comedy. And, and you knew that the, from the beginning, like kind of early age. I knew that from like high school. And I was like, I had no idea how comedy worked or how writing worked. But I right. was like, this is what I want to do. And a lot of people, like a lot of stand-ups, like watch stand-up and that's how they wanted to get into it. I like watched, te- like for me, like Arrested Development, 30 Rock, Community, Fresh Prince, like Seinfeld. Like those are the shows where I'm like, I want to write these shows like these are the shows I like and I didn't know how to go about it but that was like I went into advertising as sort of like a like a left field way to go into writing right as an Indian way of getting in because like it's not something that our parents are this is not a path that they can help us get into they don't understand it trust me I've had like 18 different careers so like I'm (laughs) I'm technically technically a lawyer can you believe that or like a bad lawyer so you're like really smart I did so like, and I resonate with you so much and you may not believe me. I mean, I'm much older now and I actually, someone married me and I have two kids and somehow it happened, but like (laughs) growing up, same thing. I never had a date. I got, I had to get set up for prom, like with a guy that was married and I didn't know it at the time. Whole other story. (laughs) I was like, this is interesting. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was high the whole time. Oh my God. That's crazy. I didn't even go to prom. Oh yeah. (laughs) My d- dinner was at Denny's. Did you did you have a Denny's? You know what Denny's is? It's like I IHOP. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know Denny's. That's that's really like rock bottom. Wow. I kept I kept shit real, girl. Kept shit real. Like kept on building up the I personality. St- <laughs> I stayed home uh, from prom to study for my AP exams, and I did get a five on all of them. So oh, you know, it was dude, getting a five is so it. much better than going to the prom. To- totally yeah, honestly, worth it. everyone got a cold that went to that prom. Someone had a flu. So honestly, I lucked out. Yeah, but I did. Was, no one asked have, me on the day. They may have been the OG COVID people. Who knows? <laughs> I was listening to one of your. You were at Laugh Factory. You had a set there, and you were talking about your first school dance and like having a mustache. And I was yeah. like, "That's like that's so many of us." I'm like, my mom didn't let me wax or shit. I, I didn't do shit until like yeah. I don't even remember. And I was like, "Was that her <laughs> way of making sure I didn't hook up?" Or yeah, but it worked. Cause... It worked, and honestly, I told, my parents did not need to worry. Like, I didn't have any <laughs> options on the table. I don't know why they were so stressed that I was gonna like get pregnant. I was like, literally, a man isn't even looking at me. Yeah, like, you guys like, can relax. Things need to happen in order for me to get pregnant, and I <laughs> first thing is not to have a mustache. I think. Yeah, it's probably step it's one. Even, it's even be seen as like a sexual option. Like, I just like <laughs> wasn't. Like it was like I didn't get hit on till like college, and I thought, and I was so confused. Yeah, I thought they were like pranking me. I really, yeah. I was so, I was. Thrilled. You're like Ashton. What's happening? <laughs> so then you went to College of William and Mary, and you got mm-hmm. a degree in business and economics. So did I, but UT. Really nice. Uh, okay. Yes, business and economics, and um, I understand though from your dad that this is not Stanford, though, right? Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> got waitlisted there, but I did not get in. And it all I did do a out. show there. I did, did do a you? show there when I lived in the Bay. I did a show at Stanford, and I like call. I like texted my dad. Like I was like, Dad, I find I'm going to Stanford to perform, and he's like, he did not think it was funny. He was like, yeah. He was like, okay, yeah. It's like kind of your article with the way parents, immigrant parents, say I love you. <laughs> yeah there, he's yeah, like all right totally i get the joke so then i gotta ask the business and economics degree i have my reasons that i <laughs> i did that what are your reasons 
Um, yeah, that my parents were not going to pay for an English degree. (laughs) Um, I mean, like, again, we weren't like, like filthy rich and they were like definitely saving up to send me to college. And they were like, we're not sending it, sending you to go to get an English degree. And I was like, okay, that's fair. Uh, But I'm also not, uh, I'm like, I'm not studying computer science. I don't want to. So like business was the compromise. And to be honest, I was really good at math and econ in high school. So like, I and I did really like it. So so I was like, okay, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do this. And I'll just like write on my own on the side. So I did business and econ. And specifically with in business, I I was like pretty good at finance, but I really liked marketing because and then I was like, okay, I'm going to go into advertising, I'm going to become a copywriter, and then I'm going to use that to become a comedy writer. Like, like, I had like a little like, plan. And then I was like, and then later on, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Chicago, because that's where like, sketch comedy and comedy writing is. And then I'm going to get there by getting this job at an ad agency. When I need to get this job at an ad agency, I need an internship. And to get an internship, I need a portfolio and to make have a portfolio, I need to build it, but I can't afford to go to portfolio school. So I need to make my own portfolio. So I like took like a class online. I networked my way into two internships and then I like built two other pieces in my portfolio. And it was like enough to do this competition for the one club. And I came in third and the award for that was a interview for an internship at Leo Burnett. <laughs> yeah. And I'm great at interviews. I com- she like just could sense my passion and she's like, "You know what? I'm going to give you this internship." And I was like, "Thank you." And that Sweet. was like my ticket to freedom, to Chicago, to comedy. I moved to Chicago right after college uh as an intern and then I got hired as a junior writer and then for like until 2019 I worked in advertising like a freaking sweatshop and then did comedy every single night. And- I feel like the story, by the way, you're like the third comedian I know that has done the same thing, meaning really kind of co- copywriting route. My other friend, Rasika Mathur, she's in LA now as well. She's a little older. Same thing. She moved to Chicago, did Leo Burnett, did stand up and writing on the side. And then she was on um, Nick Cannon's so- out, Wild and Out. Uh, she was one of the original cast members. Oh, she wow. Did- I- okay. Yeah, her name is Rasika Mathur. Awesome. So she was, I interviewed her. She went, we grew, we went to college together and she literally did the same route as you. <laughs> I got to talk to her because I, I don't know anybody else that is, that's great. Yeah. yeah I know a lot of copywriters who want to be comedians, but are not, but you should totally um, connect with yeah, her. Yeah. That's great that she actually made it. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. So then you're <laughs> there. Second city. Was that part of the rotation there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I moved there for Second City. Um, and it's so interesting. I was like so scared to do stand up. I was like, I'm not gonna do stand up. I it was never even like a thing that I thought about. I really wanted to be like a comedy writer. Um, I took sketch writing classes, but like the thing with sketch is like you need to like have a lot of people, you need to like have a space to put your stuff up, you need to like write these things, have actors, like there's so many like elements to sketch. So even if I wrote these sketches. Like I couldn't do anything with them. So right. that's sort of why I started stand up. Cause I'm like, cause stand up is like, you just do it on your own. You and you just have to find a mic. So and I'm like, all right. Find the balls to do it. That's insane. I feel like stand up <laughs> would be one of the scariest things ever. You know, a lot of people say that. I think 
I think I, I mean, it's not that I wasn't scared and I still get nervous sometimes, especially if I'm doing newer material or if there's specific shows or if there's anyone in the audience member who I know, but it's kind of like, I feel like with anything else, it's like with every other job you get like nervous. Like I'm sure doctors get nervous before they have to do a surgery, but like right. you just do it anyway. And then you're right. like good enough that you're like, it's fine. It's more important than the fear. Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, the hardest part with stand-up was like, when you start, you're not very good. Um, like no one is. <laughs> right. And all stand-up scenes are predominantly like men, white men. And so that was definitely tough when I started. Um, I had one other friend, she was like a woman. And so we kind of braved the mics together. And so that was helpful. And, you know, I was, I was good. Even at the beginning, I knew like I wasn't great, but I had the potential. And so once I started doing it enough consistently, I started getting booked on like bar shows and like smaller showcases. And then after that, I like progressed pretty quickly. Like I went from zero to a hundred and like like less than two years, I was past at the clubs and then I was like working pretty regularly. And that was like one, like I was really good. And then also like, there were not a lot of women of color in the scene. So right. I was like a double whammy of like, okay, great. She's going to do great. And diversity, double diversity. Bam, bam. So, Just use it, use it girl. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know what? This is the first time that it's actually helping me. But yeah. also like, I do want to say, cause I feel like a lot of people like play, I hate when white people are like, oh, it's a great time to be diverse. It's like, no, it's still hard. Like just still hard. Right, right. I actually have talent, but now people are like recognizing it. Right. Yeah. It, it also like is like, it's like you're just saying like the only reason you got booked before was because of racism. So you're also like dissing yourself. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, totally. Totally. Out of some respect. Yeah. But um, that was, yeah. So yeah, I that was, I was your, good. So, and then that was, was Chicago. So you were uh, doing the copywriting thing nine to five and then the stand up thing uh, on, mm-hmm. on the side. So then how did you get from doing all that to starting Team Us Comedy? So Team Us Comedy was two of my like best friends. We started stand up together. Um, we had taken improv and sketch classes together. Um, okay. So it's like Tyler Fowler and Vic Pondia. Um, Tyler and I worked at Leo Burnett and we started like doing improv and sketch together. And I was the one that was like, Hey, like, let's do stand up." And he was like, I don't know. And I'm like, come on. So we started doing it together. Same with Vic. And you know, when you start with stand up, like you're not going to get booked because no one knows who you are. So you kind of have to create your own show right. to sort of have a space where you're performing consistently and you give other comedians in the scene an opportunity to see you and perform. Right. Um, and you're giving them something. So then they book you on their shows. So that's sort of, so team us, we started the three of us and then we started um, doing shows at whatever free spaces we could find. Leo Burnett, there was an auditorium. So we, unof- like we just did a bunch of shows and unofficially did stuff there. And then after that, we just kind of started producing a lot of stuff together. So that was, that was around like stand up and team us like happened like okay. essentially around the same time. Same time. Same time. So yeah. then are you still currently copywriting right now? Um, I'm freelancing now. Freelancing. I was, uh, okay. I was copywriting until this July and okay. then I kind of had to stop. And then now I freelance, like it's great with copywriting because like now I'm like good. So I can like kind of coast a little bit. That's um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> get the pay, get the paycheck and then do, focus on what you really love. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, I, I, yeah, it's like with anything else, I'm sure you can relate to this too. But like when I first started, I was 
just overwhelmed and I would work like crazy. And now I like don't, now I have a lot more confidence in myself. And so I don't overthink it as much. And also don't take it that seriously because it's like advertising. (laughs) You're just selling more shit to more people. It's fine. Yeah. Hey, yeah. You know what? I, I've done 75 episodes of this podcast and I finally feel good about it. So it takes, it takes time. <laughs> it takes practice, you know, yes, like, I'm like, oh, wait, I know. I think I know what I'm doing now. I've learned this with comedy too. Like there's so much of it that is like confidence. Like I always had the talent, but I didn't really like fully believe in myself, um, both in advertising and in comedy. So, you know, I always like downplayed myself, but I always had like the talent And I think now that my confidence is caught up now, it's like, I think like just like the way you project and present yourself. And if you are confident in yourself, other people will be confident too. So, you know, a lot of white men are naturally confident. So like they just say yes to all these opportunities, whether they're ready or not. And, And I'm like, you know what? I'm more talented than a lot of them. So I need to just have the you know that phrase you need to have the confidence of a mediocre white man so completely that is exactly what switched for me in doing this because i have no media i mean like i've done a lot of various a lot of things from like backup bollywood dancing to non i mean like i it's just my resume makes no sense but when i started this we should be interviewing you I mean, girl, I'll come to Chicago or LA. I'll come, I'm coming to LA in March for a, I'm speaking at a conference. So let's do this. Let's oh, make it happen. Hang, yeah. But yeah, same. Just, I, I kept seeing other people doing this and I'm like, I just, I don't know if I'm good. And I'm like, why, why do I keep saying, like, when is this going to end? Like, right. When is this going to end? I've been doing all this other shit. I popped two babies out of my body. Like, <laughs> I can fucking do this. Like, what's wrong yeah. with me? It took me yeah. a very long, I mean, literally, I feel like up until this past, couple years to be like i have a voice whoever wants to hear it great if they don't great but this is like what i love doing and so i finally have a i feel like that happened to me in the last six months where i was like oh like i was yeah like i mean that was with the new yorker where i'm like am i good enough for the new yorker and it's like yeah i got in 13 articles in my first year and that's like rare yes Um, you did i I was like looking at all your article dates i was like damn girl like you just like lifted off yeah, I was like questioning myself. I yeah, and then like a lot of them went like super viral, which is also rare. So I'm like I'm like, "Oh, I'm I got like a book deal out of it." I'm like, "You know what? I'm good. I need to stop downplaying myself. You're like good. I'm consistently done well in stand up, consistently done well in writing while being great at advertising and political research. I'm like, "You know what? Like I need to stop like being like, oh, I'm like, okay. And just well, like, stop being the underdog, stop being the victim, right? Like, I feel like people yeah. like me and you, the way we grew up, the way we thought, whatever insecurity bullshit we had, which is mm-hmm. fine. We're all supposed to have that. I'm just tired of being or like saying I'm the underdog or like being mm-hmm. like, oh, it's fine. I don't know. Just fuck it. No, I'm ca- like, it's, I can do this shit like anyone else can or better. Yep. Totally. Yeah. With you. High five, girl. Yep. I'm going to give you a hug. <laughs> so the New Yorker. So I read four articles last night. Oh, uh, wow. Thank of course, you. Uh, yes. Awesome. Uh, how immigrant parents say I love you. The dating is so hard. One. <laughs> a letter of appreciation to all the men who haven't sexually harassed me. That was just perfect. And then Thank I felt you. like these four kind of like resonated with me as a South Asian woman as well. And then the last one I read was a, I'm a person of color and suddenly everyone is so interested in me. 
something bad. That one was my happened. favorite. That was my favorite one to write. Right. And I love that because, you know, I'm kind of getting the same shit with the podcast because it's growing and I don't think people mean to say it, but they're like, it's so great because it's the right time for you and woman of color. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I'm going to take it. I'll take it all. Whatever diversity quota you want me to take. But I'm also like, same as you. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. But also like, I know what I'm doing kind of thing. Yeah. And also I've like been here since the dawn of time. Like it's not like a new trend. I love when people pretend like, like being queer, being a person of color, being like, I hate when they pretend it's a trend. I'm like, yeah. I, like we've been here, always yeah. been this talented. So, yeah, for a very long time. So you just yeah. said, I was, my, my next question was, I mean, you've got so many great articles, but so then talk to me about that, that last one. I'm a person of color and suddenly everyone is so interested in me. Like why, why did, what inspired that? Just talk to me about that article. You know, it, what inspired that was, I mean, my life, but also, um, <laughs> I remember Myself? around, uh, yeah, myself, but also around June 2020 when uh, the protests were happening around George Floyd, like all of these companies were like bending over backwards to put up their like, uh, we care about black people posts, like especially like I was freelancing for a tech company and like part of my job was like writing their whole like representation matters website and like how much work it took for them to like to go through the legal teams and the out, like to get the exact wording, right. Um, and like knowing other friends at tech companies I worked at who were doing the same thing and all of the on Twitter, like, but also I'm in that tech space where I'm seeing it from the other side. I used to work in politics. So I like have a bunch of friends who are like assistant to like politicians and stuff. And like, I'm getting their side to it. And also I'm a comedian. So we're like making fun of all these people. And like, that's most of the people I know on like Twitter and in life. And then what like led me to write that piece specifically was it was around March, April, when uh, that shooting happened against Asian American uh, woman at the salon. And I got into a tiff with my boss because she asked me at the end of our check-in how I was doing about that. Um, she's a white woman. And I was like, well, obviously I'm not great. It's uh, It sucks sometimes to exist in this country. And you were like, how uh, are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, It was like a human um, got shot for no reason. So Right. And I was like... I was like, yeah, I mean, it's exhausting sometimes to be a person of color in this country and like to like read that news and then just have to go to work. So and then she was like, well, I think more than a racial issue, I think it was like a gun control issue. And I was like, um, well, it's both. Uh, I don't think it's one or the other. And she was like, no, definitely. But she's like, I just feel like there's always going to be racists. And like the least we can do is get rid of the guns that they hold. And I'm like, well, I think that's also part of the issues that there are racists. And like that is Mm. also horrible. And then she kept going and I had to like, I like lost my temper. I was like, um, I think you're like a rich white woman who works at a tech company. So I don't think you can, I don't think whatever you're going to say about being Asian American or or race is not going to, is not relevant and is not what we need to be talking about right now. And I told her to shut up and that was not cool, but um, I don't regret it because <laughs> she apologized later. But that, I was just like, really angry and I needed to again like channel that into something and I just remember that night that I just I was like I need to write something and I just started writing that and then I wrote it in one night and I sent it and um the editor published it and 
you know, I had a few things at that point. I think I had like four things in the New Yorker and they all did like pretty well. But this like was the first one that like got shared a ton of times, got me like a bunch of followers. A lot of people reached out and DM me like, hey, like this really resonated with me. Like totally. It I'm was like the first like, one. Yeah. This is fascinating that you got you you wrote that article out of initially anger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was just like sick of it. And I think a lot of people are where they're just like, oh, you wake up, your freaking ethnicity is trending on Twitter. And you're like, great. Now I have to deal with this or like anything that happens good or bad to another like Indian woman, brown woman, whatever, like all of a sudden I need to have an opinion on it. Like, it's just like right. so exhausting. exhausting. Right, right. Yeah. Ooh. I know. Getting compared to Mindy Kaling or Lily Singh or Aziz Ansari. We yeah, all look alike. Just... You didn't know that? <laughs> Yeah, um, and it's like I can't tell the difference. I just, just, oh yeah, I've been totally told fine. I'm Mindy, I look like Mindy Killing a million times. And like, I mean, okay. I was about to ask. I was like, am I interviewing Mindy right now? No idea. She <laughs> racist against her own people. I want to ask super quick now, going back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. What do your parents think about what you're doing? The move to LA now, kind of the more the now the total commitment to mm-hmm. making this dream goal happen. It's happening, obviously, but just focusing on it pretty much um, and kind of uh, going more towards the creative arts. Um, you know, I think they were really scared or confused in when I was in college because they didn't really know what I was doing. And I think they just had a lot of natural anxieties around that right? because they were just worried about money. And so essentially... Um, I didn't really have like an option to fail. Right. Like I, like if I, I didn't have like the luxury to like experiment and not do well at something. And that is why I was so overprepared and planned about everything um, was because I knew they were just sort of like, okay, if you fail, you're going to have to go into like computer science. And we were right, right the whole time. Right. So they had a lot of anxiety around then, but because I never failed, I got the advertising job and I, Get, getting promoted, worked at Apple. Like I did all of the success in advertising and in comedy. So now they're kind of like, you know what? Like you're doing something right. You're getting all, you got an agent, you got a manager, you got a book deal, you're writing for the New Yorker, you work for Apple. Like you're like, they're like, whatever you're doing is working out, it seems like. So now they're like, they just sort of trust me um, because they like don't really have a reason not to. I haven't messed up colossally. Right, right. You check you check the um Indian yeah, parent I support boxes. myself. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was supporting myself. I was making money. I was, you know, was doing all the things. So they couldn't really say anything. Yeah. I think I think a book deal is a pretty solid check. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, they're still like whenever I come home, they're still like, so when are you gonna get married? That's what they like bug me about now. Cause they're like, yeah. you're doing great in your career and in your like life otherwise, but what about the dating thing? And I'm like, well, you know, actually I've been stressed for the last decade working that I didn't really have time to focus on dating. So I guess I'll Don't do worry. That you know what? When you have your own show, that that whole dating thing will be done. They'll be like, if you're done, be like, it's cool, whatever. Look at my girl. <laughs> it's gonna happen yeah. it's gonna happen and i love the whole nicholas cage prank thing that you did on your parents which is awesome oh, yeah. that's just so random and so amazing or is it not random do they love nicholas cage 
No, they don't. It was really random. It was so crazy. I it like literally was a dumb idea that I had and I did it and then it went like super viral and then everyone started doing the Nicolas Cage meme and then I remember I studied abroad in England and some girl from Spain is like, "Oh my god, you did that?" Like, "I know that." And I'm like, "What?" So, and that was like funny cuz like when I interviewed for my first internship, I didn't have a portfolio. I was like a sophomore in college and that was the reason they interviewed me cuz they That's- saw that and and like someone in the watch they some women that I went to that went to the same college as me saw that and then interviewed me for the Washington Post so it was just like that was like the first like press <laughs> that I got for the dumbest reason and that was like it, in a way I guess it started off my career you're like see so. dad I didn't need Stanford yeah I it's just insane. I had to well, just, it's like I didn't have any connections or network or money. So I'm like, I just had to figure out a way to be smart about this. I love it, dude. So <laughs> I, I get this. I mean, I, I pretend I'm a comedian and like behind the scenes, like to my friends I am. <laughs> and I've always gotten this bullshit of are Indian chicks allowed to be funny? What? Who's, did someone say that? No, it's just in in general – I mean, it's changing now, but in general, mm-hmm. Indian chicks weren't known to be funny, right? Like that wasn't our yeah. our strong. It wasn't a stereotype. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we were, you know, hairy or pretty or whatever. Um, but funny was not one of them. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten backlash on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is like it's not it's not necessarily like drawback. It's more like the assumption, right? I think if you're like a man, um, if you're a white man, you walk into like a comedy club and you say you're a comedian, like uh, usually people believe you and usually right. they like think you're funny. They think you're funny before you've ever, you before you've done anything. Um, obviously if you're on stage and you're like not funny, people are like, yeah, that guy's not funny. But they, you start, you start off on like the right leg of people just assuming you're funny. I don't think as a woman and especially as a woman of color, you have that advantage. Nobody like walks, nobody sees like a short Indian girl in a dress walk on a stage and and is like, Oh, I bet she's, I bet she's going to (laughs) murder. Like nobody like assumes that whether they want to say it or not. So you already are starting off with like a, like you have to prove yourself. Right. You know? Um, so that is sort of, so you almost have to be like super funny. You can't just be like, okay, right. funny. you have to like absolutely murder. So right. that kind of drove me to start. Yeah. There was like a sense of like, oh, I need to prove myself. Cause these people don't take me seriously or don't think I can play at their same level. So I need to like come in super fucking hot and like, right. like murder. So that it wasn't necessarily like a, like drawback. It was more like, Again, like having not having an option to fail, I had right. to do really well, or else I was just going to prove them and their little biases right. Right, and getting and getting yeah. those chances over and over again was not going to be as easy, right? So, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of times yeah. that Tyler, Vic, and I traveled, and they like people assumed that I was their like girlfriend, <laughs> not like a comedian, and then I crushed. And then obviously, no, it's so interesting because like especially with comedians, like they don't care how many credits you have. If you don't do well, they don't care. And yeah. in some ways that's really great. Right. Um, but um, in it, I can definitely tell from the way sometimes people treat me before I perform and after I perform that they like, they're like, Oh, okay. You're like good. And then they'll look me up on social media and they're like, Oh, you have credits. And then they like treat you a little differently. Um, so I can tell from that the biases that they start off with. 
Well, you are damn good. I've been watching your clips. It totally makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's awesome. And I love that you talk about sex and you talk about dating life and you talk about just, it's, it's awesome. I feel like, like I said, things are changing. Landscape is changing. I know growing up in the eighties, I never saw it, you know? And so Mm -hmm. like I said, I want to be you when I grow up. So if you need ever need a backup partner, let me know. Not that I would ever go on stage with you. I would just pee. I'll just get you chai or something. Um, Okay. (laughs) That would be great. Ultimate collab. Who would you ultimate, like, what's your dream collaboration? Ooh, that is a great question. It's so interesting. Like, you you mean like a famous, like a famous person? Or, or, or someone like me. I don't know. Just like, (laughs) just someone, like whoever you could think Um, of. No, I mean, there's so many people like in Chicago and LA, New York that like comedians at both my level and like slightly above me that I would like love to collaborate with. Um, there's just like so many people that I know who are so talented, like Janelle James is like an incredible stand up comedian that, you know, like I would love to like learn from. There's a lot of writers. I think if I had to answer, Issa Rae is someone that I like really look up to. Um, Mitra Jahori is another great comedian and writer. Um, both of those people I would like really love to collaborate with. Um, I recently saw Love Life on HBO Max, uh, season two specifically, and that was incredible. And so that's like a like the creator of that show, like that's someone I would like love to work with. I guess that would be my dream collab as of right now to like write for season three of that show or like develop something with them, like in that vein of like talking about dating and sex but like in like a the context of now and with like the aspect of religion and race and all of that and this is why i love podcasting thank you meg for chatting with me it was so fun and also kind of a much needed break from reality you guys please follow meg check out her site megindorthy.com m-e-g-i-n-d-u-r-t-i.com and on all socials at megindorthy you guys know where i am thank you for listening thank you for starting the year off with me it's gonna be fun this is tuckered out mm-hmm.